I'm excited to begin this new series in the book of Nehemiah, and we've called it Rise Up and Build, because that's what Nehemiah says to his his fellow countrymen later on in the book of Nehemiah. We'll get to that later. He says, rise up and build. We can do something for the Lord. He's called us to do this. And so as we think about church planting, a new church, as we think about beginning to meet in person, we think about taking initiative with in, in for God's kingdom, for his glory. We think about being involved, engaged with what he is doing. What does that look like? How do we move forward in a way that we don't forget about him, but we actually are, are, are seeking and following him, keeping in step with him, having our eyes fixed on him? And Nehemiah is a model of that. And this morning we begin in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we see how God actually initiates he initiates and he moves Nehemiah to action. And then Nehemiah responds, and he responds by seeking God in prayer. That's his first step of action. It's his first step of action. And what I love about the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah is that God is clearly at work. He's clearly at work, but it's never explicitly stated. And we see, we see how, this, how this relationship between God and us, his co-workers, his ambassadors, his witnesses, how that works, but from a very human perspective in one sense. And it's encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. I hope we learn a lot together as we go through this. But Nehemiah begins by prayer. One of the best examples I know of, of what prayer does comes from music. I'm a musician. I I, I play jazz amongst other things. I studied at university. And the, the amazing thing about jazz is that it's, it's improvised music. Not all of it, but there's a large amount of improvisation. And the key to improvisation is to actually listen to what everyone else in the group is doing. To be able to stay together, to be able to play together, to know who's leading, who's taking initiative, and where they're moving. And so in that same way, prayer is about listening to God, talking to God so we can keep in rhythm with him. We can keep in step with him, where he's leading, what he's doing, and we're listening. He makes some rhythm over here. We get we get on board with it. He makes some noise over here. He plays a couple of chords, and we, we play the right notes so that we can harmonize with that as well. That's what prayer does. That's what Nehemiah does. So God initiates, and he moves Nehemiah to action, and then Nehemiah responds by seeking the Lord in prayer. And so let's begin here in the opening verses of Nehemiah, and we see how the Lord initiates. Listen to what he says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, and it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th years, I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, my kinsmen, came with certain men from Judah. God initiates by bringing Nehemiah's kinsmen, and God always initiates. Sometimes, in seemingly just normal, my brother came to visit me in the citadel in Susa. God initiates. And you can see that all the way from the beginning of Ezra, where God uses Cyrus, the king of Babylon, to send exiles back to fulfill the promise that he'd given through the prophet Jeremiah after 70 years of captivity. He's going to begin to send his people back through Cyrus, who sends this chap called Zerubbabel back to begin rebuilding the temple. But then they get stopped. 
people around Israel, they, they, they don't like what's happening. They don't like that the city's being rebuilt, that the temple's being rebuilt. And so they send a letter to Artaxerxes and say, these people, they're rebels. They're going to fight against you if you let them build. And so he says, stop. And so they stop building the temple. And then eventually they write another letter, this time to Darius, a new king. And they find the, the first edict from Cyrus and they say, ah, you can, you can build. And so he says, you can keep building, but the people don't want to build. So God sends prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage them. And the temple is finally finished. And then God sends them Ezra to teach them about the covenant and his rules and his way of doing things so they can worship God properly. And so the temple is finished in the time of Nehemiah, but the wall is still in ruins. The people can't worship in safety. They're still in danger of becoming intermingled with the surrounding peoples and of, of, of adopting their ways and religions and, 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 and idolatry. And so we can see how God initiates in a very, he works through his creation, through people. I love that verse in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, where it says that God is the one who determines the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling places. He moves people. He brings Nehemiah's kinsman, Hanani, to him. And here's what happens next. Nehemiah asks him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had, been, who had returned to Israel and who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah asks. Now, some, some people say, Nehemiah is being patriotic. This is good. It's a good kind of patriotism. I don't think that's what this is. Nehemiah is concerned for his people, but more importantly, primarily, he's concerned for God's people. He's concerned for the people of God. For, for us, that's being concerned for the local church. That's being concerned for the people of God today who are, who, when they gather together, that's in local places, that's the local church. We're concerned for the people of God. Jeremiah is concerned for the people of God in the Old Testament. That's Israel. And he inquires, he asks, he wants to know what's happening with them. Sometimes we're tempted to be spiritual bystanders. And, and, and the temptation of the spiritual bystander is that they think someone else will, will inquire. Someone else will worry. Someone else will do something. The temptation of the spiritual bystander is sometimes that we acquire, but we assume it's someone else's responsibility. And sometimes we know we will have a responsibility if we understand what's happening. And so we avoid asking the question. But ne Nehemiah doesn't do that. He responds to God, bringing someone into his life with information, with what's going on. He's concerned for God's people. And so he asks the question. And in verse, verse 3, second half of verse 3, he hears what the need is. They said to me, the remnant there in the province had survived the exile and is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah takes on board, hears what the need is. And it's a twofold need. It's both a practical need. The wall's broken down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. And it's a spiritual need. The people there are in great trouble and shame. 
It's both practical and it's spiritual. And this is a thread that runs throughout the book of Nehemiah. That the need that God's people are confronted with is both practical and spiritual. And Nehemiah is both practical and spiritual in his response. Both practical and and spiritual in his response. He is both a man of action and a man of prayer. And prayer, friends, sits at the intersection of spiritual and practical needs. Prayer sits at the intersection of those spiritual and practical needs. Because it, it brings us coming before God, seeking him. But it's something we're doing practically. We get down on our knees and we begin to talk to him. It's practical and spiritual. Friends, is, is your first response to any situation, let's pray. Whether it's a friend sharing with you, hey, can I pray for you? Whether it's something happening in your own life, whether it's chaos at work or in your home, in your marriage, is your first response, Lord, I, I, I need to seek the Lord. Lord, where are you? Friend, let's pray. Sometimes we say that prayer is the first work of the believer. It's not wasted time. It's not wasted hot air. It's the first work of the believer. At City Church, we say we are prayer dependent. We depend on prayer because without it, we're just going to fall over. We won't get anywhere. We're prayer dependent. We want to keep in step with what God is doing. And so Nehemiah responds with prayer in verse Four, and we'll look in detail at his prayer from verse 5 on, but just a few thoughts about prayer from verse 4. Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so there's this sense in which Nehemiah responds to God in prayer, but actually God has moved him to prayer through the coming of his kinsmen, through the hearing of the need. You notice that he prays and he fasts. Fasting is, is a distinct attempt to say, I'm going to prioritize the spiritual for a second over the physical, over eating, or, or some other thing that you're, you're going to put aside for a second and say, I'm going to seek the Lord, I'm going to prioritize the spiritual for this specific amount of time. And so Nehemiah says, let me prioritize this. I need to seek the Lord here. There's a wonderful illustration about what prayer is in the person of Napoleon, who's, yeah, he's controversial. Um, he wasn't necessarily a very good person, but he was a brilliant analyst, a brilliant general. And, and when the battle was happening, he would get up on the, the hillside, so that he could see all the movements of the troops, both his own and the enemies, and he would look, and eventually he would say to, to, to his captains, he would say, that farmhouse over there looks inconsequential, get it, hold it, I don't care how many troops you lose, get that one place and hold it. And that's what prayer is in that sense. It's trying to, to get hold of the one, to hear from the one who can see the whole big picture, see things as they are, both practical and spiritual as well, material and spiritual, and to hold on to him and say, Lord, what are you doing? Show us the way. Where do we need to get to? What do we have to hold? That's what prayer is. That's what Nehemiah is. And so his work begins 
on his knees. It begins on his knees in prayer. I love that image of being on your knees before God in prayer because it's both a position of surrender to God. Surrendering to him, want to hear his view, but it's a place of attack as well because prayer does things. God loves to respond to the prayers of his people. It's both a position of surrender and of attack. Prayer is not wasted time, friends. Christian, is your heart tender to what the Lord is doing in and through his people? Is your heart tender towards him? Nehemiah's heart was tender because God could move him. He moved him to prayer. Is your heart disposed towards the Lord of of being ready to hear and see and respond to what he's doing? Is your heart tender? Are you concerned for the health of the body of Christ today? people of God? Are you motivated to see it fill its its mission to make disciples of all nations? And lastly, is the Lord trying to get your attention right now? Oftentimes he uses inconsequential everyday things. Someone you've met sharing about something, hearing a missionary share about what's going on in a different country, and he wants you to, to get down and pray for that. And he knows why reading an article. Is he trying to get your attention right now? Friend, if you're watching along and perhaps you're, you're, you, you, are, you believe in a God, perhaps you, you, maybe you don't believe in, you, don't, you would say, I don't believe in any God right now. But this idea of prayer is based on something really key. It's this idea that God, we can know God, that he cares about us, that he hears our prayers. Otherwise, prayer is pointless if he doesn't hear it. He cares about you. You have great value and worth in his eyes. He's a personal God in that sense. We're going to talk more about that later. But we believe the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus is not a God who's just out there, who we have to try and manipulate to get to do what we want. No, he's a God who's actually seeking us, who's waiting to hear us talk to him. You should try talking to him this week. You should try talking to him this week. Lord Jesus, if you're there, show me. Nehemiah responds, and he seeks the Lord in prayer. God's initiated. He's moved Nehemiah to prayer. Now Nehemiah responds and he doesn't move directly into what we would consider oftentimes action, doing something about it. He stops and his first action is the right one. He seeks the Lord in prayer. And there there are four truths about God, about how God works, who he is that Nehemiah leans into. The first is this idea that that, that God is a great God who loves unconditionally. Nehemiah begins with who God is, and it's key for the rest of what he prays. He fixes his eyes on God, and he says, here's what he says in verse verse 5. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. There's two aspects about God that he addresses here. The first is that he is a great and awesome God. He is able to to do something. Psalm 115 says that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. 
And that is repeated a number of times in the Psalms and the different prophets. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. He's in control. He moves people around. He raises up kings and brings them down. And Nehemiah comes before God with this belief that he actually can do something. He's able. He has the ability to do it. It's a key belief to have about God when we come before him. He's actually able to do something. But he continues and he says, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That word, that phrase, steadfast love, is the Hebrew word chesed. It's translated 169 different ways in six different versions. It's a really special word. And it means unexpected or unmerited loving kindness, favor, mercy, grace, loyalty, faithfulness. It's sort of that, it's, it's God's special sauce, if you will. It's, it's, it's one of those things that makes him unique. It, it's, it's the thing that, that means that God is not only able to do something, but actually he's willing to do it as well. He's willing to do it as well. And that steadfast love, that chesed, is fully revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Unmerited favor, grace. God came while we were yet sinners, and Christ died for us in our place. We didn't deserve it. It wasn't based on anything we had done. It was completely unexpected and unmerited. God came in the form of a human, Jesus and he died for us. It's completely based on who he is. Full of mercy, full of grace, full of loyalty and faithfulness to us. Friends, we need to believe this. We desperately need to believe this about God, that he is not only able to do something, but he is willing to do something as well. We see this in Nehemiah's next phrase in verse 6. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes Open. Sometimes we ask people what God's most, the most important characteristic of who he is. What is it? Is he love, mercy, grace? Yeah, those are important ones. But the most important is that God is knowable, that he's a person, that he reveals himself. Because otherwise he could be all of those things, but we wouldn't know it. That we can know that he's like that and experience them personally because we can have a relationship with him. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. Let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes be opening, open. He knows that God is knowable, that he's a person, that we can talk to them. And he, he answers. That's God's chesed in action, if you will. It's his chesed in action. He's a personal God that we can know who hears and listens and cares. And so Nehemiah's prayers found us on this idea of who God is. He's able to do something. He's willing to do something. And we can approach him as well. He is the great God. The great God who loves unconditionally. The second thing that's really key in Nehemiah's prayer that we see in verse 6, is that he's also a compassionate God who forgives the rebel. He's a compassionate God who forgives the rebel. Here's what Nehemiah says. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and 
night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And so Nehemiah moves into this moment of confession, motivated not by trying to manipulate God, trying to be, to, trying, trying to, to get God to do what he wants, but based on what he's just said about who God is. It's motivated by God's awesomeness, his holiness. He's uncorrupted by sin. He's different than us. Which all through the Bible, when we're confronted with who God is and his holiness, always leads to an awareness of our own sin. But also motivated by his steadfast love. Is who said. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 that God's kindness leads to repentance. And so Nehemiah begins to confess. And, and you'll notice that he doesn't confess his own sins only. He, conf- he does confess the sins of he and his father's house, but also of the people of Israel. This is an intercessory prayer. He's interceding for the people of God. A couple of thoughts about intercessory prayer. The first is that God loves to respond to it all through the scriptures. He loves it when a a righteous person steps into the breach. That's the picture of intercessory prayer from Ezekiel chapter 22. God says, I am seeking someone to stand into, to step into the breach in the wall. There's a hole there. Who's going to step in and fill that gap between the people and God? And in his grace, he loves it when righteous people step in and say, yes, Lord, do act on their behalf. I'm coming before you on their behalf. God is looking for intercessors. And I I love the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, when God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he has this wonderful conversation with Abraham about What will it take for him not to destroy it? How many righteous people need to be in the city? But before that, he says to himself, should I reveal to Abraham what I am doing? And that's the heart of intercessory prayer from God, if you like, because he loves to involve us in what he's doing. We're his co-workers. We're his ambassadors. We're his witnesses. And we have that relationship with him in Christ Jesus. He wants to reveal to us as we seek him, what he's doing, and he loves it when we step in to the gap. This intercessory prayer is also born of true humility. True intercessory prayer does not care about yourself. It's incredibly bold. Who would dare to step between God and someone else? And so for true human, true intercessory prayer, you have to not care about yourself, but be completely consumed with care for God's glory and God's people. And that's Nehemiah. He doesn't, he doesn't care about himself. He's consumed with, with, with seeing God's glory go forth and seeing God's people do what they're meant to be doing. And, and actually his, his, He's willing to be identified, as is Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Almost the same words in many ways. He's willing to be identified as one of the guilty, one of the, the weak, the shamed, the powerless. He's willing to be identified with them, to count it among their numbers so that he can bring them before God on their behalf. That's what Nehemiah says. We have been very 
corrupt. We've not kept your commandments. He's lumping himself in with them. And I don't know about you, but that's hard for me because I want to appear righteous. I want to appear justified. I'm not with them. I'll pray for them, but don't, don't let me in with them. That's they're, they're, they're over there. They're in their sin over there. But Nehemiah says, no, we, we, the people of God, have not, even I in my father's house. He intercedes for them. He's willing to be counted amongst their number. But an intercessory prayer in my mind, is the true prayer of action. It's the true prayer of faith. Because it comes from someone who's willing to get their hands dirty. If you're willing to be counted amongst the guilty, the weak, the shamed, you're willing to go and do something, to go get your hands dirty as well. And so in that sense, the prayer of intercession is a prayer which expects God to do something and seeks to be involved. It's the prayer that expects God to do something and is looking for ways to be involved. I know some of us can't always physically go be involved. Thinking of elderly folks, sometimes prayer is actually their way of being involved. And so that's why it's really important to say that it's a prayer of action. It's it's a prayer of the heart that says, If I could, I would, because I love to be involved with what God is doing. It's a prayer of action. It's a prayer of faith. A prayer that expects God to do something. And Nehemiah comes and he confesses and he intercedes for the people. Prayer, without action, is like an arrow that's fitted but never loosed. Prayer without action is like an arrow that's fitted on the bow but it just stays there. It's never loosed. An action without prayer is like a blind archer. It's like a blind archer. For us at City Church, it's like spending hours praying for the salvation of our city, but never going out onto the streets to try and share Jesus. Never inviting neighbors over and trying to build relationship and look for opportunities to share Jesus. Intercession is the prayer of action. God is a compassionate God, and he forgives the rebel. And Nehemiah knows that, and so he moves forward in boldness, in confidence, to confess those sins. But he also knows that God is a faithful God who remembers his promises. And so if, for me personally, as I'm reading this, and I'm going, man, he's confessing, he's interceding for, that's a bull, that's a daring prayer. But it gets, it gets better. It gets better. Because now Nehemiah starts reminding God of his promises. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He he recalls the promises that Moses that God gave Moses for the people in Deuteronomy. 
He, and, and, and he says, they're your people. It's reminiscent of that moment when the people came out of Egypt and they built that golden calf and God is about to destroy them. And Moses is on the mountain and he says, don't do it. What would all the people say around us, the surrounding nations, if you destroyed your people? And they would say, ah, he was a wicked God. He brought them out of Egypt just so that he could destroy them all. Don't do it for your name's sake. For your name's sake. And so Nehemiah, in, in, in this interceding for the people, he confesses their sins on his behalf, but he also reminds God of his promises to them. What, what boldness he has to go before God and say, remember you said this? Remember you said this? You should do this. You promised. You promised. Don't let your name be sullied for the nations. Nehemiah is consumed once again for God's glory, and God's people. But friends, Nehemiah isn't the only one who has this boldness. We have this boldness as well in Christ Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews says, that we have confidence to approach the throne because Jesus has made a way for us to come in before God in all of his power and glory and holiness. We can come before his throne and remind him of his promises. And guess what? All of his promises are yes in Christ Jesus. All of his promises are yes in Christ Jesus. We need to be in the business of coming to God and saying, Lord, you said this. Take him at his word. Trust him that what he said is true. You said this. We want to see it happen. We want to see it happen. We can come before God because he remembers his promises. And we can bring, that's the ministry of the church, trying to bring the world to God and trying to bring God to the world. We're between those two. And God uses us. We're his co-workers. He is the faithful God who remembers his promises. And lastly, he is the good God who answers prayer. He's the good God who answers prayer. So after this long prayer, Nehemiah has one single request. He says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. One single request. Sometimes God gives us a sense about what, what's the one thing that we need to pray about in this situation. What's the one thing we need to pray about? Maybe we need to make more of a practice of asking him, Lord, what do you want me to pray for this situation? I've been learning that this week. I've been thinking about that. Lord, what do you want me to pray for this situation? He loves it when we bring all of his, our requests to him, all of our concerns, all of the things that we want to see him do. But sometimes we need to say, Lord, what is it that you want me to pray about in this situation? I also suspect that this prayer was a, was, is a summary of the prayer that Nehemiah prayed, because actually he, he prayed for several months. If you look at the time frame and the dates that we get when he actually went before the king in chapter 2, he prayed that. And so this is a summary. And so there's a sense in which also sometimes we need to say, Lord, what do you want me to pray about? We should always say that. What should I pray about? But actually, as we seek the Lord in prayer over time, sometimes he refines it, he filters it down into that one thing. That one thing. And Nehemiah has that one thing. Lord, this is the thing. 
Give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is <laughs> the most powerful man on earth at the time. The king of Babylon. I love how Nehemiah re refers to him as this man. He's just another man. In the sight of God, he is just another man. He's as guilty and sinful as anyone else. He's mortal just like anyone else. Friends, that's, it, it's, it's, it's another little sign that Nehemiah's prayer is ultimately founded in this idea that God can move the king just as much as he can use move Nehemiah, just as much as he moved Cyrus years before, just as much as he can move you and I. It comes from a place of believing that God is both willing and able to act. He's both able and willing to act. A child who knows that a parent is able but not willing, eventually stops asking. A child who knows that a parent is able but not willing will ultimately stop asking. A child that hears no all the time ultimately stops asking, eventually. How many of us have stopped asking because we think God is able but I'm not sure he's actually willing. Nehemiah believed that God was both able and willing. Christian, do you pray or do you not really expect God to act? Is there a sense in which deep in your heart you don't really believe he's going to act, that he's willing to answer those prayers? Can I challenge you this week? seek him and to ask him whatever the situation is in your life to seek him and ask him what is it you want me to pray about this situation what is it that you want me to, to pray about this situation and can i encourage you as well we need to develop concern in our hearts for the people of god for the local church we're a local church here in wolverhampton there are others in our country many others there are others all around the world we need to be concerned for god's people. How are you concerned for God's people? How are you concerned for God's people? For their health in, in the local church? For the mission, how they're reaching out into the world? Where is it that your heart is tender towards God and what he's doing? Where is he trying to get your attention this week, this month, this year, in terms of what he's doing in and through his people here in Wolverhampton? And if you're watching, but you're not part of our church, our local gathering of believers, in your local gathering of believers that you're rooted in, where's he moving your heart in terms of what he's doing? Friend, I, I, if you're watching along with us and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, I just want to come back to that really basic idea that the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus Christ, the one who died for us when we were completely undeserving, he is both able and willing to act on your behalf. He cares deeply about you as an individual. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. He's a personal God. Can I encourage you this week to talk to him? Start with these words. Lord Jesus, if you're there, show yourself to me. I want to know you. Lord Jesus, if you're there, show yourself to me. I want to know you. 
because he really wants to introduce himself. He's standing at the door of your heart, as it were, and he's knocking. Can I encourage you to open the door today?